Hello, student pharmacists, and welcome to another episode of Offscript. My name is Nathan Hughes, and I am a member of your 2018-2019 APHA ASP Policy Standing Committee. Offscript serves as a way for our committee to interview experts in the field on topics interesting to student pharmacists, as determined by the resolutions passed annually at the APHA ASP House of Delegates. Resolution 2018.3 is titled Emergency Prescription Refill Protocol, with the goal of addressing the uneven emergency refill policies from state to state and urging a national standard to be adopted. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Jody Jaggers, the emergency preparedness pharmacist in the state of Kentucky. Jody Jaggers has served as Director of Pharmacy Emergency Preparedness at the Kentucky Pharmacists Association since April 2017 and recently started a new role with KPHA as Director of Pharmacy Public Health Programs. While working as the preparedness pharmacist, he was responsible for the operations of Kentucky's Mobile Pharmacy Surge Unit Number 1. Prior to joining KPHA, Jaggers worked 13 years as a community pharmacist in both chain and independent pharmacy settings with experience as a staff pharmacist and pharmacy manager. He completed his undergraduate degree at Western Kentucky University in 2000 and his Doctor of Pharmacy at the University of Kentucky in 2005. Jody currently resides in Versailles, Kentucky with his wife and two children. And now let's get to the interview with Jody. So I'm here today with Jody Jaggers from the Kentucky Pharmacists Association, who worked for a good deal of time in the emergency pharmacy role with the Kentucky Pharmacists Association. Jody, thank you for being here today. Glad to be here. So starting off, uh, can you tell us a little more about your uh, current role in emergency pharmacy and how you ultimately came to work in this space? Sure. So a little bit of my background. I'm a formerly retail pharmacist with Walgreens for eight years and an independent pharmacy here in Franklin for five years. And in my previous job, I was aware of this role here in this program here, the Kentucky Pharmacy Association. And when it came available, I thought it was interesting. I heard about it when I found out that they were hiring. I thought that it applied as much as I Great. Uh, has there always been a pharmacist in charge of statewide uh, pharmacy responses to emergency? Uh, I don't know if there's always been a pharmacist in charge. There's always been pharmacy involvement from just the bit of history that I've been able to pick up in the last year and a half uh, in this role. I've talked to several pharmacists who just shared with me their experiences with working with the state and other groups throughout various times, primarily since 9-11. Uh, since it's been a focus shift there, just with things like the strategic national stockpile uh, and, and other pharmaceutical caches like that. So there wasn't necessarily pharmacists in that role, but there's always been somebody. It seems like it's been consulting and supporting pharmacists. Kentucky Pharmacists Association is in charge of that stockpile and cash for the state of Kentucky? We help manage it. We're not necessarily in charge of it. Um, it's still state-owned, but we do help manage the stockpile and just some logistical things. Uh, and certainly, it applies to So, what is pharmacy surge unit number one sure. at that time? So, uh, the pharmacy surge unit number one is just the technical name of Kentucky's mobile pharmacy. And that is about a 35-foot-long trailer. It's fully contained. Uh, there's a pharmacy in the trailer. It's basically a community-type pharmacy. So we, we 
can do just about anything a retail pharmacy can do with your license in the state of Kentucky. Um, limited compounding ability, but you can do a little bit of that. Uh, but it's uh, heated, cooled. Uh, QS1 is our pharmacy operating system. So you know, it really is a fully functioning pharmacy. And uh, the surge is just kind of common parlance in, in the preparedness world. Uh, just indicating a response to something Event, there's a surge in response. So ours is the pharmacy surge unit. Sure. So you work very closely with the Kentucky Department of Public Health, and I'm just curious, how did that partnership uh, with Kentucky Pharmacy Association come about, and and what does that work look like? Sure. So uh, as far as I know, Kentucky's Kentucky Pharmacists Association and the Department of Public Health have a pretty long-standing relationship. It it really crystallized in 2008, 2009, when we had the H1N1 swine flu pandemic in the United States. Uh, federal government sent not just to Kentucky, but to all the states a large stockpile of Tamiflu. And at the time, KPHA helped the state manage it by strategically placing it in pharmacies around the state uh, and then also supporting some on site. So that was really, I think, probably not the beginning of the relationship, but it, but it really was one of the first that strengthened crystallized terms. And since then, it's been just growing ever, ever, ever since, and it's really just continued to strengthen the group and the different responsibilities have been given. So we don't house the Tamiflu anymore. That's, that's housed in another location in Louisville, actually. But now we, we have the preparedness role, which has been around since 2012, and, and so the pharmacy itself also announced And a side note, we can talk about this in a little bit, but there's actually two new roles in the Kentucky. Uh, as part of that relationship, uh, they're going to focus more on the opioid crisis and the response to that. Interesting. And the, that partnership has, has increased and you have those grants that are associated through the Department of Public Health. How did those grants come about? Sure. So those, primarily the grants, uh, the preparedness side are from the CDC, Federal Emergency Preparedness grant money. The two new roles are also funded by CDC funds that are, that are part of their response. And then we have, as part of all that, we have the Kentucky Opioid Response Effort funding through the Cabinet for Health and Family Services. And that one is specifically focused on naloxone access for recent athletes. Interesting. So as student pharmacists, uh, any recommendations or avenues that you'd recommend for maybe working with some of these refill policies that are uneven from state to state? Um, I think the big thing for student pharmacists is one, just to know what your laws are in your state and to understand them and how they work and the flexibility you have with those. That's the first thing. Uh, there is a disparity, I think, between the laws. I think, I think most states have some sort of emergency refill procedures on the books uh, for for Kentucky, it's primarily centered around local emergencies, things that are prepared by the government. Uh, I suspect that in most other states, it's similar. So when you have something on the federal level, it's a little bit of a different creature uh, as, as to how states respond to that and their laws are different from the government. I think at the end of the day, most boards of pharmacy can be focused to take care of patients and make sure patients uh, are being served. I think that's the most important thing, is just to not 
side of patient care or compliance programs. Completely agree. I think that's a big reason a lot of us as student pharmacists and pharmacists in general got into the profession to begin with was to, to assist and help patients. Sure. So what led you to become an emergency preparedness pharmacist? I know you spoke a little bit about your uh, pathway, but were there any special certifications or classes you had to complete for this role? Sure. Um, no special certifications or classes. My interest in it really was just that it was different. Um, you know, as a retail pharmacist, when you do, I think when you do anything, one thing long enough, you get to a point where you feel like either you're not going to grow much more in that area or you might get a new challenge and you just, you just want to try something different. And that's where I was um, at that point in my career with retail pharmacy. I still enjoyed it. I still do enjoy the retail-like aspects of this job rather than the pharmacy dispensing. Blocks over again. I enjoy those those components of it, but it really was just something different. And so, what I've done most of it's just been training that's online, self-directed, FEMA-based courses that you can do. That, that those are actually anybody, students, public, anybody can do those. They're free. You don't get any education credit for them, but you do get certificates that you can print those out. You can put them in your files so that you know that you have that background, uh, and it is good information. Really starts from basic orientation around preparedness and the terminology and the language, which can be overwhelming because if you work with the government, federal, state, or otherwise, you know, they're giving everything that has an abbreviation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the pharmacy has an abbreviation. Everything in medicine has an abbreviation. And sometimes <laughs> the same abbreviation that exists in pharmacy world exists in a preparedness oh, world, no. and they mean <laughs> nothing the same. So, um, so it can be very confusing. So it is helpful to learn. The jargon and then just start integrating that in. So that's that's a big part of it. Not formal training, but but training for this just to get up to speed with what the language is. Interesting. So uh, circling back to something you mentioned, it was started around 2008. Was there a, an event that that took place in in 2008 that that made this come about? I know you spoke uh, a little about some of the, the earlier things, but was there uh, uh, anything that made this kind of I mean, sure. 9-11 from before, but anything around so, that time? You know, the H1N1 obviously was a partnership, mm-hmm. but then we also had Hurricane Houston, which they think was the type of hurricanes that could affect us. Exactly. But the reality is, um, in the United States, we're divided into preparedness regions, and Kentucky's in Region 4, and if you're a sports fan, think the SEC conference, and that basically encompasses most of the states mm-hmm. that are in preparedness Region 4, and Specifically, Louisiana, we have we have an agreement with, although we would help all the states equally if we could make roads. But Louisiana, if they have a hurricane or a natural disaster that displaces a significant number of their citizens and they can't house them in the rest of the state, then Kentucky has agreed to house, I believe the number I've heard was about 1,500, but I know it flex up. Uh, and for Hurricane Gustav, we ended up housing in the historic environment around 2,200 folks, and they were at the Jewish Fair and Exposition Center. At that time, a private, I think, program pharmacy was service the, the patients that were there. Because you can imagine if you're going into natural disaster, you probably don't have medicines with you, or maybe they were destroyed, or you have a very limited amount of medications. Exactly. And so when you arrive at a shelter, not everybody's going to need medicine, but a fair number of people probably will. Because at the point where people are, are being evacuated to another state, you're talking about some of those vulnerable populations. Um, and so helped get the medications to them during that event. And that just got the state thinking, is this something we could do? How would we handle that? And 
So the mobile pharmacy was born out of that, those conversations. And so that's the primary mission for the mobile pharmacy. It's really one of three possible primary reasons for the package. And most likely would be a mass shelter plan, either state sending as, as residents here being housed, uh, or we could have something here in the state of Kentucky that could be national and, and we could take mobile pharmacy and send it out uh, for activated candidates or volunteer pharmacists and students uh, that could dispense medication. We would stock roughly 300, cut the top 300 locations that cover a wide array of disease states and would help efficiently take care of so that's the most likely scenario. Uh, another scenario that's possible would be like some sort of pandemic that would require biologic or uh, pharmacological response, uh, either flu event or some sort of uh, infectious disease where uh, potentially vaccinations, mass vaccinations would be required of that, or uh, dispensing antiviral agents or antibiotics, so that could be a response. Uh, thought is always that our government here reacts as the only thing that's mm -hmm. Super likely in Kentucky. So that's one potential response. And then another would be just in the state of Kentucky, there was something that was national that uh, a small special pharmacy that was incapacitated, who it is possible they could be activated to come down and help get the operations serviced. So thankfully, we've never been activated. Uh, I hope we never are, not because I don't. Well, it's good job, to be prepared, but, but you know, just I that agree. means somebody's had some really bad Tough days. Yeah, uh, if we get activated, so I'd rather not have it. Interesting. So, I guess uh, transitioning here a little bit, you you spoke uh, a little about uh, your work in the opioid crisis uh, here in Kentucky. Uh, can you? I know it's come up in uh, in conversation and, and through some of the uh, our house uh, debates, uh, some work in this area. Can you describe to our listeners uh, some of your uh, work in the opioid area? Absolutely. So, um, a little bit of history. In 2015, Kentucky was not the only state that did this at the time. But in 2015, Kentucky passed some legislation that allowed pharmacists to increase or to, to prescribe naloxone via protocol from a physician here in the state of Kentucky. And the goal was to increase access to it because of the opioid crisis, which had been a problem for the past 10 years. Uh, was really starting to just be, I think, recognized by the powers that be. And Kentucky was, was at the very top, in the top five of the list. You don't want to be on the list with those. And, and so to try to address that, you know, just to try to stem the, the hemorrhaging of overdose deaths, the goal was to increase access to naloxone. So that's the genesis of, of all this. Uh, we were already using mobile pharmacy at that time, or had mobile pharmacy. And it was proposed, hey, we could use mobile pharmacy and pharmacist protocols to dispense naloxone. Would that, would that work? And so folks at the state liked the idea, folks at KPHA liked the idea, and so they, they hammered out the details. And since November 2016, we've been using mobile pharmacy, surge unit of the year, yeah. uh, <laughs> to, uh, to go around at the request of health departments uh, and other agencies around the state to do community events where we typically set up for around four hours in most cases. Pharmacist volunteers, student pharmacist volunteers to come do naloxone training in small groups that we dispense naloxone. And that's primarily been funded with grant money, although the state did allocate some, some funds last year uh, for some of the naloxone purchase. But it's free to anybody in the community that shows up. They, they leave, they 
hopefully with the comfort and uh, the knowledge on how to recognize and respond to an overdose in the alcohol environment. So that's the big thing we've been doing. Uh, to date, we've had So, over the last two years, we've done 49 events, and we've been in 46 different counties with those events, and we've dispensed over 3,000 units of heart at those events. Uh, this year alone, we did uh, 1,300 units, uh, and that was a little bit down because we didn't do as many events this year as we've done in the past, so we had to kind of scale back a little bit. Funding issues may not have been crystallized yet, so we didn't really kind of have money to you know, we've done anywhere from 15 uh, training and, and dispensing with our hand at one event up to 185 in a four-hour time period at our business events. So uh, it's, by and large, been a very well-received program. Uh, and, and we feel like we're, we're doing good. We get anecdotal evidence from people and responses that uh, kidney dispensed here save, save a life. So we at least know that, that people are alive now So that's that's kind of where we are now. I'm actually transitioning into that full time, away from preparing us and into that role full time to help do those events more regularly, and then just to manage the uh, distribution of the walk. So different brands are trying to work with pharmacies and other agencies around the state to get those walks and other things. That's uh, that's definitely a great work going on there. And I know you said that. Uh, uh, it's been rewarding, and, and additionally, this past April, uh, you received this surprise visit. I, I hear from, and a demonstration from the U.S. Gym, Surgeon General. Yeah. Uh, how did how did that come about, and and it was was it sprung on you, or what was discussed there? It was more or less sprung on all of us. Uh, Dr. Jerome Adams uh, had we had heard. I think the timeline clearly a week or so before we had uh, been on a conference call. I want to say we, myself, and the state, various members of the state. Discussing the Surgeon General declaration or advisory that he'd given. And it's the first time in a long time that the Surgeon General had done an advisory. And his, his basic premise of it was that he was encouraging Americans to, to become educated on the opioid crisis, to become educated on what an overdose looked like, how to recognize it, how to prevent them, but how, how to recognize it and how to respond, and then also carry naloxone, and he was likening it to CPR, uh, CPR intensive care. And so that was about a week prior, and then the following week, about four days before the actual event, we got word that as part of his, basically his media tour, uh, mm -hmm. to get the word out, he was going to be stopping in Northern Kentucky, uh, which the Northern Kentucky-Cincinnati area is, is, uh, has had a lot of issues with overdose deaths as well, and, and they also have been pretty aggressive trying to respond to it. And so that was going to be where uh, his first stop was going to be with his media blitz. And so we kind of scrambled and got everything together. And we actually had the mobile pharmacy there. And I ended up spending a lot more time than I anticipated with him in front of the cameras. And we basically did a mini naloxone training session uh, from each of the groups over there and one of the various members of the media, the community that were there. And we took him out to the mobile pharmacy and we, we had some more dialogue with the reporter and journalist. And talked a bit about what Kentucky's doing that's unique and just different responses. And it was really neat to talk to him because he was just a very approachable and, 
and I think he surprised everybody because up until then I didn't know much about him, but he shared that you know, he has a brother that served time and uh, there were crimes that he committed as, as somebody that struggled with substance abuse. So it, it, it hit close to home for him as well. That's, I think that was telling, I think, for a lot of people in the Surgeon General of the United States saying, this has personally touched my family. It lets people know that this isn't just uh, something in the fridge using the periphery that you can affect. It probably does affect all of us. Shows you the impact. Absolutely. How, how much and how, how large it's grown that it has even touched his family. Um, so are you working with any other states uh, closely to address this? I know we're close to Ohio there in Cincinnati. Or, and I, I, there's an opioid summit uh, coming about or has been talked about, I know, between the states. Are there any other states you're working closely that have kind of used maybe this as a model uh, to follow? I'm not working closely with any states directly. I've been recently researching just what other states are doing uh, just to see kind of the, the different responses. And, and I'm seeing quite a few similarities, but I'm also seeing significant differences in how different states are responding to some of our neighboring states, which has been interesting. Um, some things as you know, Ohio has specifically carved out, you know, law enforcement can proceed and walk some folks in, which is good. Virginia has specifically put language in that, that, um, that basically waives the locks on having to have a patient's name on it as part of the expense. Um, Indiana and Illinois have really gotten uh, what I would consider pretty aggressive especially from a pharmacist's perspective, because they actually uh, have protocols set in place where a non-pharmacist entity can apply with the state to be a naloxone entity and basically nonprofits can possess, order possess, and, and distribute naloxone without a pharmacy involvement. Um, so there's there's quite a few things going on around this. I think everybody realizes that naloxone is not the answer. It's, it's not a cure. It's not a band-aid. Well, this has been a, a wealth of information on the ideas of emergency preparedness. So I guess in closing, what advice would you give to student pharmacists that are interested in helping with maybe some disaster or emergency preparedness efforts? I think the biggest thing, depending on where you are, what state you live in, I would investigate your medical reserve corps, local branch. In Kentucky, for example, that's K-HELPS is what it's called. The Medical Reserve Force is a federal program to basically it's 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 focused on licensed medical professionals, but even non-licensed lay people can be part of it. And the idea is just to have a central database where where people have been credentialed and have some training. And should an event happen where their response is needed, people aren't just showing up and saying, "Yeah, I'm a pharmacist." Well, if they have no record that you're pharmacists, you know, if they there's liability issues, all kinds of stuff. So the MRC really is designed to help have a way that some sort of clearinghouse where if you show up and you're an MRC volunteer and you've got your credentials, then that's what you can plug in. It's helpful because it, it plugs you into a network where depending on the community you're in, local MRC groups can be very active. And it's not necessarily pharmacy. I mean, you may help with health conditions, help with exercise. It's just you're, you're plugged into the, the, the preparedness side of things at that point. So that's, that's one thing. And you can do that as a student. You can do it continue as you graduate and practice, um, but certainly being involved with member organizations in whatever state you live in, uh, even as a student is really important because that just helps learn about advocacy, learn about policy that's going on. Um, 
and it gives you a voice and, and an avenue to, to express that and to have some sort of an impact because I think a lot of people just don't know where to start. It's overwhelming. Uh, whenever you do settle into a community, if you can, I, I do believe you can become a state representative, a state senator. If you can get to know your federal ones, that's awesome too, but it's a lot of times your, your state folks are a little more accessible because you, know, you, know, you go to church with them, you, know, you go to the gym with them, and you never know. Um, but just getting to know them, talking to them, out to dinner, take out to lunch, buy coffee. If those little things actually don't go unnoticed, they, they get the attention of the representatives, and you get their ear, and you can at least let them know that they're important to you and your profession. So those are awesome ways to get involved uh, with not just the parents, but with, with the advocacy process in the community. Well, that's been an amazing wealth of information. Jody, thank you so much for your time here today. Uh, we really appreciate it, and I'm sure our student pharmacists have definitely got a lot to, to learn and have learned a lot from this, so thank you so much. Absolutely. Glad to be here. I'd like to take a moment to say thank you again to Jody Jaggers for taking the time to speak with us. Unfortunately, there is a lot of variance from state to state on the issue of emergency refills. As a current update, Kentucky only allows pharmacists to provide a 72-hour emergency refill. However, there is a bill in the current legislative session that would allow pharmacists to refill insulin products and respiratory disease medications due to the unit of use packaging being greater than 72 hours. This bill has been dubbed Kevin's Law, originating from Ohio, and recently passed the House unanimously. I want to encourage all student pharmacists to engage your state legislators and advocate for the changes we all would like to see in our profession. Please subscribe on Apple Podcast or on SoundCloud and share this with all of your pharmacy friends. And until next time, this has been your APHA ASP Policy Standing Committee encouraging you to think outside the prescription pad.